Daylight savings time is over, folks. What did you do with that daylight that you saved? Okay, I can't find any any place. But every March and November, there's always a big deal made about this. Okay, in March, everybody's whining. Oh, man, oh, I lost an hour of sleep last night. It's going to take me a month to get caught back up. In the fall, nobody complains about getting it back. Now, if you have to work the 11 to 7 shift, you're not going to like it because you're going to end up working nine hours instead of just eight hours and only getting paid for eight hours, even though you worked nine hours. But you may have seen or heard this before. Okay, when told the reason behind daylight savings time, an old Indian shook his head and said, only the government would believe that you can cut a foot off the top of a blanket and then sew it to the bottom so you'd have a longer blanket. Well, that's really kind of true. Okay, but when daylight savings time started, it made more sense than it maybe does today, to us anyways. But it was done so people would be able to have, farmers would be able to have more time to take in the hay, would have more time at, at harvest to be able to do what they needed to do. Now, that's one reason that we get told anyways. But most of us rightly complain about how early it gets dark in November. You know, and I'd complained or mentioned it anyways to Diane just the other day. It was a little after 7, and I said, man, it just seems so much later because it had already been dark for an hour or more. And a lot of people go to and from work in the dark, and that can be pretty depressing. Now, personally, I wish that they would just make what we call daylight savings time standard time and not change it. Now, Arizona and Hawaii, they have to figure out what they're going to do because they don't do daylight savings time. Okay, but all of this has to be decided higher than me, and nobody even asked me for my opinion. One thing I do know is God makes the sun shine, and in the winter, the daylight hours are shorter. In the summer, they're nice and long, because that's the way he wanted it. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks that you're with us no matter what. In everything that we do, no matter what time of day, no matter how light or dark it is, that you're always there. And I just praise you for that. So, Lord, as we look at your word today, Father, help us to see the message that you have for us. Lord, help us to be blessed by what you give us, not by me, but by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, November is one of those months. One of those months that has five Tuesdays. And so I normally, one of those Tuesdays will give them a message on giving or tithing or stewardship. And so that's what's going to happen today. So I thought it would be appropriate to talk about the fact that most of us, if not all of us, 
are blessed to be able to give and to help others. I know that I, and I can probably say we, have much to be thankful for in regards to this. So I thought a good place to look was 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to be in the NIV for most, if not all, of the message. Okay, so let's begin with the first two verses, 2 Corinthians 8. And Paul says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, let me stop there. Verse 2 just does not seem to add up. Okay? Severe trial and extreme poverty doesn't really go with overflowing joy and rich generosity. I mean, it's kind of like oil and water. It just doesn't seem to work unless you add to that the grace that God has given. Ah, only trials and poverty or only in trials and poverty can there be joy and generosity if God is there. Okay? So no matter how great your trial, no matter how deep your poverty, God can still bring joy and generosity. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Hang on for verses 3 through 5 and what they tell us. Because Paul goes on and says this, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Now, I have served United Methodist Churches in western and central New York, on the eastern shore of Maryland, and in the state of Delaware. Never did anyone plead with me to give. Never. Ever. I can't think of one person. Now, more often what would happen if I mentioned from the pulpit that there was a need for money, you know, that we had some big bills coming up or expenses or whatever it might be, the people would just kind of try to avoid eye contact. They'd be kind of looking through their hymnal or they would be looking at the floor or cleaning their fingernails or whatever they're doing because I don't want the preacher to look at me because he's going to think that I'm going to be interested in giving more money. I had one person come up to me after a message that I had given on or that I had given on giving complaining to me that I shouldn't have spoken on that because there were visitors there on that particular Sunday. Okay, now remember these are small churches and it was easy to pick out somebody that wasn't part of the congregation. 
And so this person thought I should have plucked another message out of the air and given that. I won't share what my response probably was, but it was probably more along the lines as what the Lord gives me is what you get. Okay? And that is true with any other message that I give. Now, there was always people that were ready to give to special things. You know, if there was a mission project, you know, if somebody from the church was doing something, if the youth was going on a short-term mission or whatever, you know, at Christmas time to be able to help out some people in the community. If there was a disaster, a hurricane, tornadoes, you know, whatever it might be, flooding. You know, there was always people that were ready to, to give to special things like that. But I'm not sure how many would have given if it wasn't brought to their attention that there wouldn't be a lot of people coming up and saying, here, here's $100 for the people that are in this flood, or here, here's $100 or $50 or whatever for, you know, where this tornado went through. You know, I mean, there may be one, maybe two people that might do that, but there wasn't a whole lot of pleading to give. Now, when we would take trips to Jamaica, there was rich generosity. We'd see people trying to outgive others. I remember being in one church in an evening service, and I can't remember what the need was, but the pastor was, he had put out two offering plates on the altar, and he said, this one is for the youth of the church, and this one is for the adults of the church, and I want to see who's going to give more to whatever this need was. And so people came up and were putting money in, and, you know, I was sitting there, and I could see that there wasn't a lot of youth coming up, and I I knew the youth probably didn't have a whole lot of money. And so I put in like $500 Jamaican, which was probably about $30 at that time. And, you know, it almost doubled what was in there. But these people were glad to give. Okay, a lot of churches don't feel that way. A lot of people in churches don't feel that way. But one word in those three verses that really stands out to me is privilege. Okay, I'm not sure a lot of Christians look at giving as a privilege. And as I understand the word here, it means, you know, a privilege or an honor. And that's exactly what it is to give to the Lord's work. It is a privilege. It, it is an honor to be able to do that. And that's any part of the Lord's work. Okay, missions, you know, that's easy. You know, helping the poor, the underprivileged, yeah, a lot of people see that as a privilege. You know, disasters, sure, you know, we'll give to that, but there's so much more that we need to give to, you know, to pay the staff salaries, you know, to pay the utility bills so the lights are on, the heat's there, the AC is there, you know, to pay the insurance bills, you know, to make sure the repairs are being done, to get new music for the, the choir, or the worship team, you know, to be able to help the youth out. You know, those are all things that are coming all the time, you know, not these special things. And it's a privilege to be able to share in those common everyday, everyday needs or everyday expenses that a church has. Now, 
you need to remember who Paul is writing this to. The churches of Corinth, you know, they were troubled. They were dealing with false teachings. There was idol worship. There were many distractions within the church and outside of the church. A lot of things that were going on that should not have been going on, especially inside the church. So let me move on, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. (laughs) Paul was being kind of crafty here. He's saying, you've got great faith. (coughs) You're very well-spoken. You're knowledgeable. You have great conviction. You love generously. Now, you need to give generously. Paul was aware of the wealth of these believers. Okay, Corinth was a major port. There were people and goods going through there daily. People buying and selling the stuff that was coming in. Staying there and spending their money. Because there was a lot of money going through that city. So Paul knew that they had the ability to give generously. But ability and desire are two very different things. That's why he intentionally talked about the Macedonians. (coughs) Macedonia was not very far north of Corinth, but a completely different area. And even though they were very poor, they had the desire to give. Verses 8 and 9. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is where Paul brings out the comparison to those giving greatly. No matter what, and then he reminds the Corinthians that Jesus left the riches of heaven for them and gave his life for them. He actually personalized it because he said, yet for your sake, he became very poor. He didn't say for our sake, said, for your sake, you became poor. So even though he gave his life, it was for all, but he wanted them to know he did it for you. Verses 10 through 12. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work 
so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Here's how I comprehend what these verses say. Okay, some churches in the fall usually would have the members of the church make a pledge of their giving for the coming year. And that's turned in, and that's how their budget is put together. And so they're to complete what they say they will give by the end of the year, hopefully throughout the year on a regular basis, although some wait to the end of the year and give most, if not all of it, at that time. Now, I never did that in any of the churches that I was serving. But maybe here Paul is referring to something similar to that. Because he says, you said you would give, and you gave some. Well, now it's time to ante up. Okay, now it's time to give what you said you were going to give. Okay, you started giving. Now let's, let's get it finished. Okay, the end of verse 12, Paul says, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. I interpret it this way. Give what you're able. Not trying to give more to make yourself look more well-off than what you are. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 9-7, where he says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. Okay, we've heard that many times, right? So what he's saying is, if you're trying to give more than you're able, you're not going to be very cheerful. Okay, that's what I get out of that. Okay, you give cheerfully what you're able to give. In verses 8, 13 to 15, it says, Your desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Okay, so Paul is referring to Exodus sixteen eighteen concerning the gathering of manna. Okay, when Moses said, you know, if you've got a big family, you're going to have to gather a lot. If it's just you and your wife, you're just going to have to get a little. You won't need a whole lot. Okay, and he said those that needed a whole bunch didn't get more than they needed, and those that didn't need so much, they got just the right amount. So in these three verses, Paul is speaking about equality. Okay, remember the early church. Remember what we're told in the book of Acts, especially verses 4, 32 to 37. The people were sharing everything that they had. 
no one was going to go without anything that they needed. Paul wants to see that not only within one church body, but in the church body as a whole. The church of Corinth was one of those churches that was flourishing financially, even though they had many other problems. Okay, In verses 16 to 19, Paul is letting the church in Corinth know that he's sending Titus to get the offering that they're to be making. He's letting them know that Titus is on the same page as he concerning this offering. Okay, now Titus has the trust of other churches and he wants to see the Lord's work being done. So let's pick this up in verse 20 where Paul says, we want to avoid any criticism on the way we administer this liberal gift for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Let me tell you, that is a difficult thing to do sometimes. Sometimes what is right in God's eyes is not right in the eyes of people. How well I know. Back probably a dozen years ago now, <clears throat> We took a trip to Jamaica, and I think there was five or six other people from the church that went with us. Well, after we got back, there was a couple people that were very upset with me. Money had been given from other members of the congregation, from family, from whoever and to be used to offset the expenses of this trip. Now, some money was just given to be used in general by those who were going. There was some money that was given specifically to me for Diane and myself to take care of our expenses. And some people that went with us found out that you know, we had been given more money than they had been given. And they were rather upset about this. And basically accusing me of doing things that weren't right. And that's not the way it was. Because a lot of money that had been given to Diane and I were given to people outside of the church. You know, friends and family, you know, back in New York or wherever. And... So it was a big deal, but, you know, God knew what was right, and we felt we did what was right in God's eyes, but not so much the eyes of some people. Now, I could give you a lot of other instances over the years of where money problems came up, because when it comes to people and their money, there can always be problems. I remember when we were in central New York at the churches there and the conference said there needs to be two people counting the offering at church every Sunday morning. Okay. Now in many small churches, that wasn't happening. What would happen would be the offering would be taken and the, the treasurer 
or maybe the financial secretary would just take the offering, take it home, and count it. And, you know, everybody had no real problem with that. Well, there was one church that we were serving that, you know, I said, you know, we need two people to do counting of the offering. And, you know, we had these forms you need to fill out. And people needed to sign them. You know, both people needed to sign and all this. And, and this one woman was the financial secretary. And she had been taking the offering home for years, counting it and Monday taking it to the bank and depositing it. Nobody had a problem with it, including myself. But I was trying to enforce what the conference was saying. And this woman was the sweetest woman you can imagine, the, the kind of woman that everybody would love to have for their grandmother. And she said, don't you trust me? And, and I said, it's not whether I trust you or not. You know, it's this is being done as a safeguard for you. You know, that somebody could say, well, you know, I, I think there should have been more in last week's offering because I know I gave this much. And unless everybody else didn't give much at all, something happened to some of the money. So it was a big deal. Now, in our conference, there had recently been two instances where money had come up missing. And they found that Treasurer Financial Secretary was depositing some in their account instead of the churches. So money and people, it can be a very touchy thing. So Paul finishes chapter 8 by speaking more of Titus and his love for Titus and the trust that he has in him. In other words, he's saying, you can give Titus the offering and he will do what the Lord wants him to do with it. <coughs> Excuse me. So let me wander into chapter 9 to conclude Paul's message concerning this. In the first five verses, this is what Paul says. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. I like this passage. Okay, Paul starts out building up the church of Corinth. Okay, you know, you have the willingness to give and your promise to give, and, you know, going on and on. Well, then he adds this. 
I'm so glad you're going to give to the Macedonians, but just in case you forgot, I'm sending Titus and some others to jog your memory. In other words, you better be ready with a big gift when we get there. Otherwise, you're going to look pretty foolish. Paul doesn't want to look bad, but he doesn't want the Corinthians to look bad either. Back when I used to occasionally go to annual conference, just about every year, they would have a special offering of some kind, you know, for the Native American churches or for scholarships or whatever it might be. And this offering was supposed to be taken up in the local church and then brought to annual conference and presented there to annual conference. Often churches, including mine, would not be prepared to do so. Okay, annual conference would always say, hey, that's okay, send us a check when you get home. Okay, and that's usually what would happen. So God expects us to see ourselves as one church, okay, the church, not as Methodists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians and non-denominational churches and, you know, the church of what's happening now, whatever it might be, but one church working together, helping each other, working together. The United Methodists are not able to do that within the United Methodist Church. Okay, I've always said an oxymoron is United Methodists because they are not. Okay, <clears throat> when we get to heaven, the sign on the pearly gate isn't going to say Methodist or Baptist or whatever. It's going to say, welcome home. Okay, because all will be welcomed that know Jesus Christ. So when we get there, one thing that we may end up having to do is to answer for our lack of helping each other. Paul wanted the church in Corinth to be ready. God wants us all to be ready. Help is wanted. Help is needed. Help is expected. Expected from you and I. Excuse me. <clears throat> I had to find a a song to end this with, and there's not a whole lot out there. <coughs> Excuse me. Trust me, I'm not going to try and sing it. But the name of the song is Little Is Much When God Is In It. Okay, the, the song the Gaithers have sung different times. Three verses here, how, how it goes. In the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Second verse, does the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. The last verse, when the conflict here is ended and our race on earth is run, he will say, if we are faithful, welcome home, my child. Well done. The refrain, little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, I just praise you for who you are. 
and the love that you have for us, that you love us whether our church is, is great and financially set or whether we're that little church out in the middle of nowhere with just a few people trying to keep things going, that you love us all the same. You don't love us because of a, because of a denominational name that we carry. You don't love us for any reason other than the fact that we know you and we love you. And Lord, we know that you love us. So Father, help us to come closer to you and to loosen the grip on the money that you give us, that we would be more willing to, to share with our brothers and sisters. Father, I lift up anyone that may be listening that, that doesn't know you, that's never made a commitment to you, that Lord, let them know that today is the day, now is the time, because you are the, the Savior of the world. So Father, help them to pray a prayer like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I know your son Jesus is the only Savior. So Father, help me to believe, take my life, and turn it into what you need it to be, that I can serve you in the ways that you need me to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.